Chapter 4 Alpin gave the signal to halt. The men had reached the north face of the fabled forest of A. The dense pines stood tall before them, like giants with strange intertwined arms. If the scouts' reports were correct, the Britons remained a half-mile ahead in the village of A, and their reinforcements from the south had recently arrived. Darkness was coming. Alpin stared into the sky at the western sunset. The glowing orb sat on the horizon, radiating its brilliant pink tones against the bellies of the distant grey clouds. The sight was there and then gone, disappearing as quickly as it came, fleeing like a startled doe. Alpin joined Luog and Constantine and sent a man to gather the scouts and the other leaders. Once assembled, the handful of men rode forward into the dark forest. Inside the forest, A's dense foliage enveloped the small band of Scots. Only the spotty glow of light penetrated the treetop openings where a random giant pine had fallen to rest. The forest was thick indeed. The trees were sizable, allowing but a scant amount of underbrush to grow up under the canopy of branches. The men pushed through the forest and reached the south edge of the tree line. Shrouded in the woods, they surveyed the campfires of A. Distant figures walked back and forth in front of the fires, moving about randomly and showing no sense of urgency. Luag turned to Alpin and the men beside him. We will attack from here. He asked. Alpin scanned left and then right, noting the thickness of the trees in all directions. The sun had descended, but the occasional sliver of moonlight allowed sufficient light to see. This is a suitable spot. We will gather here, but we'll spread wide. At dawn, the foot soldiers will charge from the center. The men on horseback will hold the sides. And what of the archers? Gura asked. Father, I have an idea for the archers, Drosten interrupted. He edged his way between the men and faced the group. Rushing the Britons across the field will let our men spread out like a wall, but now with their reinforcements, they could outnumber us by a hundred or more. Drosten glanced at Luag and the men and then his eyes returned to his father. I think there's another way. Drosten, the men are ready to fight. Do not fear that our smaller numbers will be outmatched by the Britons, Alpin said. We will win this battle. I'm not questioning the men's courage. I'm saying we can strengthen our attack if we split them. Split our forces. Gura said. I don't like that. But we can hit them with distraction and surprise, Drosten replied. By splitting the men in two groups, we can send our best fighters toward the Britons. They will rush A on foot from the edge of the forest. After we have hit them, the Britons will rally. Our men will retreat back to the forest. It's both dangerous and unwise to turn your back in a fight, Drosten, Luag responded. The retreat is a distraction, to pull the Britons out of A. We want them to pursue our men to the forest. We'll have our longbows launch their arrows over our men into the Britons. Drosten exclaimed, standing in the middle of the group and gesturing with his hands as he spoke. Our foot soldiers will be protected once back in the forest while the crossbowmen and archers take down the Britons as they charge after us. If any Briton reaches the trees, our swordsmen will cut them down where they stand. Alpin crossed his arms. His chin tilted down in thought. He rehearsed the plan in his mind. I hear you, Drosten, Alpin said. The plan is reasonable, but having the longbows shoot over our men is too risky. I won't lose a man to a Dalraidan arrow. Alpin began to pace. He stopped and peered at Gura and Luag.
we will station the longbowmen to the east of the advancing men. When our men retreat to the forest, our longbows will deliver their arrows from the flank. I suggest our men on horseback take a position beside the longbows. See there, see those trees to the east, Constantine said as he pointed in the moonlight to a cluster of pines protruding from the forest like an enlarged thumb from a palm. That location, tucked behind those trees, would allow the horsemen to enter the field without notice, attacking the remaining Britons while the others are fighting in the forest. Once the horses take the open area, our men in the forest can re-enter the field and finish the Britons. It could work, father, Droston said. It could, Alpin replied. He allowed his thoughts to linger on the plan several moments longer. Then he glanced about the group. A pensive, contemplative look filled his gaze. He nodded, satisfied that he had seen enough. Without a word, he signaled the men to head back. He left only his scouts to remain in the forest of A. They would be his eyes throughout the night. The band of Scots weaved their way back through the thick trees and rejoined the encamped men. The sun would rise in eight hours. The Scott warriors would rest to regain their strength for the day ahead. They would rotate shifts, sleeping and serving as posts until dawn. On that night, sleep was elusive. Slumber kept its distance from the Scots like a king from a beggar. The darkness had riches to offer the men's tired bodies, but they found no such mercy. Scenes of war filled their minds, playing over and over its unquenchable fury. If respite did come, it lasted but a moment, only to be interrupted by a muscle spasm or a hooting owl, stirring them in the night's cold darkness. Two hours before dawn, the men were up and assembled. Sleeplessness had stolen the night. Alpin addressed the Scots, detailing the battle plan and assigning roles commensurate with each man's experience and ability. Some men, those rare men steeped in courage, volunteered to serve on the front line. They would be the first to engage the Britons. Upon breaking camp, the men moved in groups through the forest. They reached A's southern tree line and found their positions. The crossbowmen climbed the trees and filled the treetops. The archers advanced to the edge of the woods with the swordsmen and axemen lined in front. An older man from Milton, sporting a mane of white hair and a wrinkled, weathered face, proudly toted the Scots war pipes. The man remained deep in the thick forest. His task was singular, he would play an elegy of lament, replete with descending keys and hanging notes, designed to stoke the warriors' souls as they stepped into the battlefield. As those on the north edge of A found roosts among the trees, the longbows moved on foot to the eastern edge, following the horsemen to the flank position. When the horsemen took their stance, Lathan signaled Alpin that the horses and longbowmen were ready. Alpin, sitting horseback along the northern timberline, eyed the trees. He was hardly able to spot the hidden warriors, woven among the pines like clandestine shadows at the forest's edge. He nodded to Constantine and the two turned their horses toward the village. Though the sun had yet to show, its illumination was already pushing back the darkness. The large field of A lay between the Scots and the Britons. The field was empty except for the two riders that morning. The Dowraden men, cloaked in the forest, gazed ahead as the two rode forward. A young Briton gathering wood was the first to see the two Scots. The young man dropped his bundle and ran to the Briton tents, scattered through the village. Alpin and Constantine stopped their horses in the middle of the field, eyeing the young Briton as he searched for his leader. In the distance, the young man stopped beside a tall, 
sturdy Britain and quickly pointed toward the two. The tall Briton shouted to a group of men. Then he mounted a horse, along with three others, and advanced into the field. The four Britons rode toward Alpin and Constantine as the two waited on horseback in the middle of A's open field. Two of the Britons wore dark brown overcoat-like coverings that buckled across the chest, common for Briton warriors. The tall man wore garb of deep red, almost blood-red, distinguishing himself from the others. The fourth Briton's outfit was different. It was black, and not only did it cover his arms and chest, but it also wrapped close to his neck and up over his ears and head. The tall Briton leader stopped his horse twenty feet from the two Scots. The man in black stopped next to him, and the two in brown split off and slowly began to circle the Scots. I am Alpin of Renton, son of Eo Chade. This is Constantine of Cashel, son of Duncan. We are sons of Dalriada, Alpin said and then paused. You and your men are on land that belongs to Dalriada. You must remove your men from A and return south, Alpin insisted, ignoring the two circling behind him. My men are settling quite well here in our new village, the Briton leader replied, peering out over the field and motioning with his arms as he spoke. They are enjoying themselves, and the plenty of this land. I have no care for your interest in the land, Alpin responded. I'm stating that it is not yours. The Briton relinquished with his pretense of cheer and peered at Alpin. He spoke in a deliberate tone, Scott, if you wish to reclaim this land, you'll have to be willing to take it. I trust, in due time, you'll find the Scott blade quite willing. The two circling Britons completed their course and trotted beside the others, forming a line of four. You're a fool to think we'd turn and flee. Your villages are pitiful and your men are weak. They run scared at the sight of a dagger. The Briton grinned and glanced at the man to his right. Then he gazed back at Alpin, I believe my men have found a new home. Alpin adjusted his reins and shifted his weight in his saddle. He stared at the four men and then beyond them to the hundreds of men watching from the village. Alpin's eyes returned to the Briton leader. He glared at the man for a long moment. We shall see, we shall see. He tugged his reins and made a clicking sound to cue his horse. The two Scots turned and rode swiftly across the field, back to the tall thick forest. Alpin sat high on his horse at the edge of the tree line and called out to the eager ears awaiting him, men of Milton, Dumbarton, Cashel, and Renton, men of Dalriada. You have come here today to show the Britons, and all of Britannia, that this land is not Britain land. This land is our land. It belongs to Dalriada. The angry forest echoed back the furious shouts of the men. Our fathers before us bought this land with blood, their blood and the blood of their brothers and sons. They bought this land, and with it they gave us freedom and the opportunity to live as free men. You, too, have fought for this land. You bear the scars on your flesh and on your hearts, with many of you having lost your own fathers and brothers in battle, a costly price indeed. The day of battle has returned once again, and as our fathers before us fought, so too shall we fight. Alpin's horse began to dance beneath him. He turned the animal and trotted beside the forest edge. Know this, life hangs in the balance today, as does freedom and tyranny. Men, recognize that we fight as one, brave and sure. And our fight is noble and right. Alpin spun his horse and returned along the tree line. Death shall soon visit this field of A. Make no mistake, death will come this day, and should my life be asked of me, then I shall give it. The trees thundered with a roaring fury. 
Alpin's voice grew louder, a man must know what he is willing to live for, and what he is willing to die for. If call of us, we shall give our blood at A, we shall ensure the blood of our sons flows with freedom in their veins. We will give up neither our land, nor our sons, nor our daughters, nor our sacred honor. We will fight. Alpin drew his sword and held it high above his head. He shouted to the men of Dalriada, do not submit your honor to another. Let it be known to all. Here. Today. The forest of A ignited in a fiery furor. Alpin's long metal sword dropped and a great horn of war sounded. The heart of every Scot pounded and the men released their cry. It was loud and awful. As the great horn faded, the haunting sound of bagpipes emerged from deep within the woods. The swiftest led as nearly two hundred Dalraidan men broke into the clearing, charging with an angry passion as if hurled from a sling. Taran and Droston were among the warriors storming A. They were side by side, screaming in rage as they rushed forward. All of life seemed to be brought to this single moment as the men charged across the green grass of A. The white clover blossoms bloomed harmlessly in the field, yielding as the torrent of warriors rushed forward and stomped the tiny flowers beneath their feet. Although the blossoms bloomed to glorify life, the men rushed to take it. Chaos erupted in the village as the Britons armed themselves. Soon the flood of Scots would hit. Britain soldiers found their swords and axes and hastened to form a battle line in the field. The Britain archers gathered behind the foot soldiers, setting arrows in their bows. In moments, the bows were lifted. A shout came, release. In a single fluid motion, the strings pushed, the arrows lifted, and an arsenal of steel-tipped shafts soared into the sky toward the rushing Scots. Bodies fell as the arrows hit. Yet the fearless Scots stormed headlong across the field. Alpin readied himself with the horsemen, anchored along the eastern stretch of trees. He was accompanied by the longbows. The men would wait as planned, as long as the battle moved in their favor. Alpin watched the field swell with the fury of men and fought the urge to charge forward, and join Droston and the foot soldiers. Then he glanced at Constantine and the others on horseback beside him. He wasn't the only one anxious to move. He resisted. He would wait for the counterattack as planned. Alpin watched life and death unfold before his eyes. The warriors of Dalriad crossed the field like a tidal wave. The loud clanking of metal weapons was an ominous sound. Three warriors leading the charge reached the Britons first, they were the tip of the spear. The three appeared as a single mass of flesh when they reached the Briton fighters, and then they split into three men divided, each searching for worthy prey. The Scot in the center continued straight, piercing through the Britons, spinning and stabbing as he engaged his enemy. He danced in a destructive rhythm, knowing instinctively where to place each step as though rehearsed a hundred times before. Each step and spin ended with a penetrating slice, severing flesh and finding bone. Several Britons fell to the mad Scot's blade, while others fled to save themselves. The Scot on the right, a short man from Dumbarton, was less nimble and more brutish in his attacks. After wrestling his bloody blade free from the belly of his first victim, he lunged shoulder-first into the chin of a surging Briton, knocking the man from his feet. The Briton thumped to the ground unconscious, with missing teeth and a broken jaw. The Dumbarton man pressed forward like a charging bull, barreling into two more men. The two stumbled sideways and the Scot tumbled to the ground. Then he lifted and leg-whipped a third man charging him. 
the Briton's knees buckled, dropping him to the ground, and the Scot buried his dagger in the man's throat. The Scots' attack continued against the Briton soldiers. Their advancing front pummeled and pounded the overconfident, less spirited Britons. Droston was not far behind the lead row of men. He could hear the sound of swords crashing across metal and flesh. His heart thumped hard in his chest. His breath seemed to flee his lungs and not return. His anxiety intensified with every step. In moments, the Britons would break through the front line. He could hear their voices, see their eyes, smell their sweat. The emotions of battle seized him, emotions known by all men, anger, fear, surprise, rage, yet, they were magnified a thousand times over in the throes of war. Every fiber in his soul pulsated with amplified arousal. Droston clenched his teeth. His nostrils flared to take in air. He summoned his courage and charged forward. A Briton instantly materialized, coming straight at Droston and locking eyes with the young Scot. The man slowed, then coaxed Droston, daring him to move first. A sudden rage burst inside Droston and he leapt toward the man. Their blades collided with a clang. The weight of the larger man's blade pressed heavy against Droston's. Another swing came. Droston lifted his shield and twisted to avoid the sharp steel. With his sword he pushed back the man's weapon. Quickly shifting his feet, he prepared to strike. In a blur, he swung his blade hard and sliced deep into the Briton's side. The man shuddered and pampled to his knees. The cut was fatal. Droston withdrew his sword and peered down into the glossy eyes of the fallen Briton. The man stared back, and his lifeless gaze slowly faded. Droston stood stone still, mesmerized. A loud noise pierced the air. The horn of the Scots. Droston sprung from his daze and glanced back at the forest. The Scots were in retreat. He ran to join them, but a sudden blow struck his shoulder and sent him reeling. His body twisted. Again, a cruel force pounded his backside. The blow knocked him off balance, and he tumbled to the ground. Peering up, he saw the cold iron trim of a large wooden shield descending toward his neck like a guillotine. Droston rolled to the side and jumped to his feet. The Briton, large and round, turned and charged Droston. The man carried no sword, yet his shield alone was sufficiently deadly. The man dove at Droston. Droston sidestepped the man and hit him with the butt of his sword. The round man grunted in anger and spun. He recoiled and swung his shield, hitting the side of Droston's head and knocking him back to the ground. Droston's vision blurred. He tried to refocus. A shadow loomed over him. Glancing up, he saw the guillotine rising, the shadow left as the Briton's guillotine peaked in its ascent, ready for its fall. Droston slid left and shoved his sword upward. The Briton never saw the blade that pierced his chest. The man slowly lowered his arms. His eyes widened and blood oozed from his lips. It dripped and splattered on Droston's neck. Droston pulled his sword from the man's chest and rolled from beneath the sweaty, bloody mass of flesh as it faded to the ground. The man would never swing a shield again. Alpin's heart raced, beating and pounding in his body. The horses beside him needed the ground, their riders set to charge. Yet, for the moment, they could only watch. Alpin's hand tightened around his sword as the Scots retreated to the forest. 
A gap formed between the withdrawing Scots and the Britons, who appeared momentarily baffled by the retreat. The opening in the field lay rife with carnage, bodies, swords, and shields lay strewn across the bloody green divide. Alpin spotted Droston, not far from the muddled mass of Britons. He watched as Droston pushed aside the large, rotund Briton and lifted to his feet. Hurry, son, he whispered. The Britons had not anticipated the Scots' retreat. Loud voices lofted from among the Britons, encouraging their men to pursue, and the Briton warriors charged toward the forest, chasing the fleeing Scots. Alpin peered to his left and scanned the standing row of longbowmen. Ready your bows. Les and the archers of Milton lifted their great weapons. Alpin's eyes swept back to the field. Droston trailed the retreating Scots. Son, run, run, he muttered, not at all eager to have the longbowmen release their arrows while Droston remained on the field. Alpin turned toward the longbow archers, watching them press their bodies into their flexing bows and draw back their heavy cords. The muscles in their arms rippled, and strained against their skin. Anxiety coursed through Alpin's body. He would have to give the command? Release. The silent, thirty-inch, steel-tipped killers soared from the eastern flank toward their victims two hundred yards ahead. Within seconds the killers reached the north charging Britons. Several men stopped abruptly and then sunk into the bloody field. The remaining Britons pushed forward, pursuing the retreating Scots to the forest. A second round of long arrows released. At these distances, the longbow was rarely good for hitting a single man, yet it was highly suitable for hitting an army. The second round of arrows sailed and found new victims. More Britons fell and littered the field. A reeked with the madness of battle, saturating the air and clouding the mind. Desperation and fury wove tangled knots of angst in the hearts of the men, Scots and Britons alike. The surging Britons rushed headlong across the field. A handful led the charge, and a great many more swept behind them like an army of predators hungry for prey, wounded prey. The slower, injured Scots were the first to be overtaken. And the slaughter began. Droston headed toward the north edge of the field where the Britons were fighting at the timberline. With several Britons in front of him and many more behind, he found himself pinned between the two. Continuing forward would take him to the heat of the battle at the forest's edge, but he'd be trapped by the Britons coming behind. Then he turned east and spotted his father and the Dalraedon horsemen in the distance. He dropped his shield and sprinted, carrying only a sword. He ran hard and fast. His lungs burned with fire, as if flames filled his chest. The retreating Scots at the forest's edge took cover in the trees. The Britons closed on their heels. To the south, the Briton horsemen poured onto the battlefield. The galloping horses rushed across the divide, toward the northern tree line. Silhouettes darted in the shadows of the forest. Scots, armed with short bows, suddenly emerged from the underbrush, while the crossbowmen shifted among the branches in the pines. The Britons hesitated as the forest awakened. A single arrow exited the trees and dropped a charging Briton. The lone arrow was followed by a hundred more, flying like a swarm of bees and riddling the bodies of the ambushed Britons. Limbs, torsos, and skulls caught the arrows indiscriminately. A second round of arrows released. Over half the Britons died where they stood beside the trees of A. Others were injured and maimed, while still others retreated. The bravest of the Britons rushed into the forest. 
their bravery was short-lived. The Scot foot soldiers surrounded and attacked their enemy as they entered. The best a Briton could hope to find in the forest of A was a quick, decisive death, by sword or bow, rather than a slow painful death, delivered one miserable cut at a time. Droston continued his sprint toward the horsemen to the east. He saw Taran, who had reached the horses and was mounting beside the other riders. A moment of relief came when he saw his father lift and drop his arm, the signal for the horsemen to charge. A hundred yards separated Droston from his people. His sprint never slowed. Droston suddenly heard the faint sound of hoofbeats coming from behind. He glanced over his shoulder. Where was the rider, left or right? How close? He felt fear and tried to suppress it. The rider was coming quickly. Droston's foot twisted below him. He stumbled and caught himself. Keep moving, keep moving, he told himself. The rider closed on Droston, and was now twenty feet to the rear. The Briton slowed and peered down the narrow plank of his crossbow to target his victim. Droston ran in disarray, sprinting and stumbling, fighting to fill his lungs with the air. He wished he could fly and soar into the sky. The Briton sighted his target. He steadied his weapon and pressed against the trigger. A single long arrow released from the east. It soared and thumped with deadly impact. The Briton on the horse gasped for breath but found none. The palm of the man's hand turned limp, and the crossbow fell from his grip. The lifeless rider slid from his galloping horse and hit the ground. Droston had heard the wisp of an arrow as it flew overhead. He glanced back and saw the rider crumple in a mound. The thirty-inch longbow arrow had flown past Droston, and found the soft chest of the Briton rider. A hundred yards away, Les grinned. He had seen the rider coming and waited for his moment. When the rider had paused, Les had not. A direct kill at that distance was not typical of longbow accuracy, but Les was not a typical longbow man. Alpin was halfway to Droston, when the first rider fell. But his fear was not the first rider with the bow. It was the second Briton rider behind him, the rider with the sword. The second rider was closing quickly on Droston. Les drew another arrow. It fumbled in his hands. He seated the arrow and pressed hard into his constricted longbow. He drew back the bowstring. Continuing his sprint, Droston heard a second set of pounding hooves. Had the horse kept running without a rider? His mind whirled. The rider drew closer. The hoofbeats grew louder. Droston's heart jolted. Something's wrong. Confusion hit. Why was the horse still coming? He glanced back. It was then he realized there was a second rider, and the rider was ten feet behind him. The Briton lifted his sword into the air. Les released his arrow. A north wind blew across his brow, and a chill ran down his spine. He watched his arrow soar and twist in the wind, praying it would find its mark. The second arrow flew past Droston, and past the rider with the sword. Droston's eyes fixed on the rider's face, a face etched with hatred. There was no time. Droston lifted his sword, but the rider's blade crashed down like a lightning bolt. The cut ran down Droston's shoulder and across his chest to the bottom of his ribs. Droston's eyes fell to his chest. He stared at the crown of his sternum. 
it protruded out from his open skin. The pain severed his thoughts. He lost his breath and dropped to the ground. Blood oozed from the wound, slowly painting the surrounding white clover blossoms a deep crimson. Droston. Alpin's glare locked on the second rider. His horse raced forward. He closed the distance between him and the Briton and leapt from his horse, lunging into the man and driving his long steel blade into the heart of the Briton. The two tumbled from the Briton's horse. The Briton was dead before he hit the ground. Alpin jumped to his feet and ran to his son. Reaching Droston, he dropped to his knees beside him. He lifted his son's head and gazed into his eyes, his body shadowing Droston's face from the morning sunlight that brought no warmth. Droston, can you hear me? Droston smiled a faint smile, Father, it is good to see you. His eyes blinked several times and then slowly began to close. Droston, stay with me, Alpin pleaded. He fought for words. I watched you on the battlefield. Son, you were a mighty warrior today. Father, I thought I was done when that big fellow, Droston tried to laugh, but the blood in his throat made him cough. He struggled to speak, when the big fellow struck me with his shield. He coughed and spat a thick red film from his tongue. Alpin scanned his flanks. No Britons near. How is he? Constantine asked as he approached and moved his horse in a circle around the two like a protective mother hawk. Alpin didn't speak, he only shook his head. Nothing needed to be said. His eyes combed across the field toward the forest. In the distance, Luag, Gormal, and the others on horseback were fighting hard and overwhelming the struggling Britons. His eyes passed over the piles of tattered bodies twisted across the field. The Scots had suffered losses, but the battle was theirs. To Alpin, the sweetness of the victory tasted harshly bitter. He gazed down at his son. The boy's face was a pale whitish blue. Alpin placed his hand on Droston's cheek. Son. Son, listen to me. You've done well today. The Britons needed more than a shield to fight you. You were too quick for them, Alpin said, groping for words. Droston's eyes cracked open, and a smile eased upon his lips. Alpin studied his face. His son's eyebrows were dark and thick. His eyelashes were long with a slight curl. The boy's nose was thin with a circular curvature, much like his mother's. His bottom lip was full and his chin bore a slight cleft in the center. Flashbacks flooded in, memories of holding Droston as a newborn baby while the boy's mother cried with joy, how he had given Droston his first sword as a young lad, how he had wrestled with his son as a boy in Renton, how they had worked together every hour of sunlight during the harvest season. His son was a gift, of that, he was certain. Droston. Alpin shook the boy. Chorich is going to be mad with envy to hear how you ran against a hundred charging Britons. He tried, with much desperation, to give his son something to cling to. Droston's eyes flickered. He lifted his arm and clasped his father's hand as it rested on his cheek. Father, I thank God for you. Droston wheezed for breath. I fear I will not see mother or Nessa with my own eyes again. I will not see Chorich either. And Kenneth and Aidan, and Donald, he is but a boy. His grip suddenly tightened, and he convulsed and coughed. I miss them, father. Droston, son? Look around. Alpin lifted his son's head. Your plan for battle was our strongest weapon. 
The Britons could not match your wit. Son, Dalrieda is victorious. Alpin smiled for his son. Father, I hope that someday, Droston fought for breath, someday, when time has passed and you are older, I hope that you will still remember me, father. The words paralyzed Alpin. He had not known tears, since he himself was but a boy. This day was different. This day was a day he would forever remember. And, despite its misery, it was a day he would never desire to forget. Tears dripped from his nose and fell to Droston's pale, clammy skin. Droston blinked at the soft tickle on his cheek. He stared up at the sky of crystal blue and shivered at the chill running through his body. A gentle wind blew back his hair as he rested his head in his father's lap. Droston turned his gaze to the distant western mountains and then to the grassy field, dotted with tiny white blossoms. The colors radiated with brilliance. He took in his last breaths of the cool fresh air of the free land of Dalriada. Alpin held the boy gently and spoke in a quiet voice, Droston, my son, in whom I am well pleased. You have honored your father, your family, and your countrymen, even giving your life to do so. As my son, I will always remember you, I will always hold you close in my heart, and as a man, you shall never be forgotten in the land of Dalriada. Droston whispered to his father, Father, will you take me home? Yes, son, I'll take you home, Alpin promised. Droston's gaze turned from his father to Dalriada's blue sky above, and then his eyes closed forever. Other Scots had died that morning, though none as dear as Droston. Alpin never left Droston's side. He watched as the Scots pushed back the last of the Britons, sitting in a silence all his own and holding his son in the midst of that awful field of A. The Britons lost over 250 men at A, nearly six to one of what the Scots lost. Yet the Scots' losses were costly. They lost Droston. They lost nearly forty others, including Gormel. Telling Cirque of the loss of his father would be painful for the boy. On that cold, bloody, autumn morning, the Dalriadans proved much, that a passionate heart and a brave spirit made for a mighty foe, a foe not simply made of men, but of courageous men, men willing to give what was asked of them. Death had stolen much from Alpin that day. It was a day that would scar him forever. A day etched with loss and pride, honor and pain. Alpin would take his son home now.